Hello, this is Watch It Baptist Church Online. My name is Mike, I'm the pastor at WBC, and you join us for the second in our uh, short series looking at the 18th chapter in Matthew. We're looking at this chapter because it's the fourth out of five discourses, kind of teaching speeches by Jesus. Let's read the passage in a moment, pray first, and then we'll have a look at what we think we might understand and learn here. Lord Jesus, would you inspire us by your Holy Spirit? You make our hearts receptive, soft enough to make us changeable by your Spirit, for your glory's sake and for your kingdom's sake too. Amen. Okay, I'm reading from the NIV, and these are the uh, verses that we're reading now, verses 5 to 9 in Matthew 18. And whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. If anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble, it would be better for them to have a large millstone hung around their neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world because of the things that cause people to stumble. Such things must come, but woe to the person through whom they come. If your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life maimed or crippled than to have two hands or two feet and be thrown into eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into the fire of hell. Perhaps not the most upbeat of passages that we might look at. I think it has something important to say to us about relationships in the church, much as the first passage did. So in that first passage, we heard Jesus talking about how he calls on disciples to be childlike, not childish, not childlike. And there's something in the simplicity and trust of being childlike that Jesus thinks discipleship needs to include. It's not a call to be unthinking, but it's a call to have a particular kind of relationship, both with the Father, but also with each other. A relationship, as, as they might have said in years gone by, without guile, you know, with no, with no pretense and no pretending. So I think part of what is important about this is recognising that we're still in that mode of talking about childlikeness. And Jesus is referring to little ones. This isn't his first use of that phrase in, um, in verse 6. He's already used it in verse 3 and he will go on to use it again uh, in verse 10 so after this passage is finished and he goes on to talk uh, about lost sheep he's still talking about little ones i think this is particularly significant because i think there's a temptation in verses 8 and 9 where we talk about cutting off bits of your body or gouging out eyes to think that suddenly jesus has jumped across talking about how we respond to our own temptations and while i believe that jesus has much to say about that i'm not convinced that's the point he's driving at here because he's still talking about little ones before and after those two verses so i think it's important to think how might this those comments about hands and feet and eyes be relevant in terms of how we care for the little ones among us and that means that recognizing that there are little ones and what that means i think the first thing i'd want to point out is that the little ones aren't necessarily children in age terms. They're not necessarily children in maturity terms either. This possibility that all Jesus is saying is that anyone who allows themselves to be in a position of a little one, of a child, 
in relationship with the Father, that, that's all of those people. And that, that, would, that would count for the most mature Christian as well as the, the newbie or the child who has a very simple understanding of who Jesus is. So I think we need to be very careful that we don't jump to conclusions about those two verses. I think we also need to be aware that the context right back to the beginning of the chapter is about um, this question about who would be greatest in the kingdom. And I think part of what Jesus is trying to say here is that pride is such a dangerous thing in a church, in any, in any community of disciples, where someone is thinking of themselves as more significant or more valuable or, you know, having having got their long service medal and so being entitled to things. Those, those things are all kind of dangerous and they're, they're expressions of pride and there isn't any room for pride because, Jesus says, we should be approaching in a very childlike way both our Father and, in some ways, those in the community of faith around us. As part of how I want us to understand this, I'm going to borrow from a film again, as I did last time. In Mary Poppins, it's from the 1960s, but I can't remember the right date. In Mary Poppins, Mary Poppins herself becomes um, a nanny to two children. Two children whose father uh, is a banker. And there is a point in the story where the younger of those two, two children, whose name is Michael, Michael Banks, has two pence, tuppence, and is trying to decide how to use that two pence. His father believes he should take it to the bank and put it in there so it can be invested in things like um, railways across Africa. I seem to remember is from the song that's about that. Um, but Michael himself, on the way to the bank, sees in Trafalgar Square a possibility to give his two pennies, his tuppence, um, to help feed the birds. And he really wants to do that. And it is a childlike wish. It is an expression of his passion and his simplicity, possibly of a, a certain amount of naivety as well. But out of his passion and compassion for living things, this is where he wants his money to go. What he has to give is very little, but where he can give it, that's where he wants it to go. But the grown-ups around him have no interest in this. They, they know best. They know what this young man ought to be doing with what he has. And so he is pressured and pushed and, and kind of bullied into taking it to the bank. Ultimately, he just isn't interested. And so Michael, instead of staying put and handing over his two pence, ducks away, runs out through the legs of all the grown-ups and escapes the bank completely. And has no interest in going back. And it's this kind of picture I want us to think about when we think about how we handle the little ones, whether they are actual physically children, as in of young age, or, or if we understand something else by way of little ones. How do we, in churches, look after little ones? Are we like the grown-ups in the bank who know best, regardless of what the little one's passion might be, regardless of their sense of integrity, and their compassion? Do we tell them what they ought to think? It's interesting that uh, in, in the immediate aftermath of that scene, 
Jane and Michael have escaped and are at the mercy of the big wide world, not knowing where they are, uh, not knowing how to look after themselves, and they need rescuing. And back at the bank, the institution is in chaos because it hasn't been able to control the little one. And there's a run on the bank and it's all in meltdown. Now, you can always stretch these illustrations to breaking point and beyond, and I want us to be careful that we don't do that. But I do think there's something valuable to be recognised in that illustration. How do we, in churches, look after, nurture and encourage the little ones? It's interesting that there are other examples from the past. I was not quite sure why, but I was minded to think of Joan of Arc, who was very young and very passionate and very, um, what's the word, I suppose, pious, but in a good way, very committed, very close to Jesus. And she provided a kind of leadership of older people, of, of experienced military men. And it wasn't through her extensive knowledge of tactics or strategy. It was through her passion and her devotion. Pride is a real danger in the life of the church. And it's not just something Jesus talks about. We referred last time to some of the comments in Romans that Paul writes. I only picked up one verse that time, but I'm going to revisit it again. And this time I'm going to read uh, from Romans 14 all the way from verse 5 to verse 13, which says this. One person considers one day more sacred than another. Another considers every day alike. Each of them should be fully convinced in their own mind. Whoever regards one day as special does so to the Lord. Whoever eats meat does so to the Lord, for they give thanks to God. And whoever abstains does so to the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives for ourselves alone, and none of us dies for ourselves alone. If we live, we live for the Lord, and if we die, we die for the Lord. So, whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. For this very reason, Christ died and returned to life so that he might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. You then, why do you judge your brother or sister? Why do you treat them with contempt? For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. It is written, as surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me, every tongue will acknowledge God. So then, each of us will give an account of ourselves to God. Therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. Instead, make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in the way of a brother or sister. We're back to that idea of stumble, aren't we? Indeed, when the, when the idea of, of stumbling, or causing people to stumble, is raised in Matthew 18, the way the language is used, the way the vocabulary is used, very much refers to stumbling blocks. You might think of it more as sort of hurdles, you know, hurdles that people have to clear. Who is putting hurdles in front of you as you run this race of discipleship? Who is putting those hurdles in place and what are those hurdles? And then Paul is coming back to that same concept some years um, later than Jesus was alive and speaking. Therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. Instead, make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in the way of a brother or sister. Now, we've got to get ourselves some kind of clear picture of what's meant by stumbling block or obstacle. And I want us to think of that not so much in terms of 
at least not to start with, what those things might be. We'll come back to that. But what the opposite of that is. So if Jesus isn't putting stumbling blocks in place, what is he doing? And, and if there aren't hurdles to clear for us to, to walk with Jesus, um, then, then what's it like to arrive in Jesus' company? Perhaps one of the things that we're tempted to do is talk about grace. And, and so I'm going to do that. Grace is something given that is not earned. The grace of God is the, the gift of life, of belonging, of community with Jesus, of family with Jesus that hasn't in any way be earned and to which we have no right at all, no matter how good we think we are or how law-keeping we believe ourselves to be. There is no way for us to get to that place. If you like, there's no way for us to enter God's house, God's, I don't know, luxury five-star hotel. There's no way for us to enter that hotel except that Jesus pays for our room. And so the first thing we do is go into the lobby, that lobby that's a space of welcome, where, where um, a member of staff comes up and says, how can I help you? Or where there are very comfy chairs to sit in just as we go from arriving to the next bit. So if we, again, being careful not to stretch metaphors too far, but if we think in those terms, then really it is Jesus that provides that lobby. And he does that through his death and resurrection. So in his death on the cross, Jesus says, this is how far I'm willing to go in order to create an environment of welcome. This is what I'm willing to do, to give up everything that makes me me, so that I can welcome those I love into a place um, that we can share. That's only needed because people are relentlessly, human, humanity is relentlessly um, consistent in messing up God's intention. There are various ways that God would like his creation to work and we as people are just so good at messing up how that's supposed to be. We do it by doing things that we shouldn't do and not doing things we should do. We do it by the way we act, by the way we think, by the way we talk. But in the middle of all of that, there is this determination from Jesus to provide us with a place of welcome, like that luxury hotel lobby. That's where our welcome comes. And so if that's the kind of welcome that Jesus is offering, that kind of really unboundaried welcome, a welcome that doesn't have to be earned, a welcome that worries, that doesn't worry at all, but only thinks about what else might be included once that welcome has happened it's, it's not you'll be welcome once you're wearing the right dress code or you are, you'll be welcome once you've shown your bank account is big enough or if you arrive in the right kind of car none of those things it, it's it's a welcome first everything else will come after that welcome and so if that's how Jesus does it then that's how we should do it too he is our example for how to be humanity if you want to know what humanity is designed to be you look at Jesus He's the only one who ever lived humanity without flaw. So Jesus sacrifices his status and his life so that we can have that welcome. And that's what the church is supposed to be like. The, the relationships of the church are supposed to be based on that kind of approach. And it's an approach that only works where people are willing to set aside their own preference their own benefit in order for others to thrive. 
in in preparing for this talk, which uh, was that roundtable approach again. It was um, Yorath and Helen helping me out this week and last week it was Ollie and Matt. But in talking this three, we were looking at a little bit at how um, Spock in the original Star Trek films at the end of the Wrath of Khan sacrifices his life so that others might thrive, recognising that he's choosing to put himself in a place where he will not just die but suffer and die so that others would live and thrive and have further adventures and, and explore more. Now that's the kind of selflessness and the kind of giving and the kind of welcome that Jesus models for us and which we are called to do. And we're not just called to do it for those who seem sophisticated or seem to have something to offer, but for all, for all of those little ones, anyone who has put themselves in a position where they recognise that Jesus is king, that the Father knows best and can be trusted. All those who know that deep in their hearts and all those who are just exploring that idea for the first time. That welcome is for everyone. I want to take a quick look at some of the flip side of that. I suppose going back to some of how those adults behaved in the bank in Mary Poppins. I'm going to do that from Ezekiel 34, just reading from verse 1. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Woe to you, shepherds of Israel, who only take care of yourselves. Should not shepherds take care of the flock? You eat the curds, clothe yourselves with the wool and slaughter the choice animals, but you do not take care of the flock. You have not strengthened the weak or healed the sick or bound up the injured. You have not brought back the strays or searched for the lost. You have ruled them harshly and brutally. They were scattered because there was no shepherd. And when they were scattered, they became food for all the wild animals. My sheep wandered over all the mountains. And on every high hill they were scattered over the whole earth and no one searched or looked for them. Let's just read into verse 6 there. There is more in that passage as Ezekiel speaking on God's behalf expresses his incredible disappointment at the way the people of God as a community of worship, as a community of God's people in faith, as those who are experienced and knowledgeable and sophisticated and confident of their own position have failed those who were not have failed those who were left out or put on the margins or those who didn't see the thing working the way that they might have done in the passage that we read there are those two verses eight and nine if your hand or your foot causes you to stumble cut it off and throw it away If your eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. This is radical talk. It's radical because I think the reason why it's so radical is that Jesus is telling us in the context of caring for those that we share this community with that anything that stops us taking care of them needs to be rooted out needs to be absolutely got rid of now 
I am absolutely fine with the idea that that you know that part of what Jesus is saying here is that when it comes to personal sin, we need to be radical and ruthless sometimes. I'm okay with that. I think it's true, but I think in this context, with this reflection Jesus is giving on pride uh, and on the careful little ones, that we need to be really conscious of the possibility that what Jesus is saying here is that if there are those who do things or who by their presence are creating a hurdle for little ones to jump, a stumbling block for them to fall over, then they've got to be left behind. Some time ago, a couple of years ago now in a deacon's meeting, there was a conversation about how the church might be, how Watch It Practice Church might be in the future. And one of the things that we were very confident about is that whatever the way forward was, we weren't going to allow that movement forward, that momentum, to be held back by those who weren't committed to it. And that's tricky because in a Baptist church you really want to make sure that all voices are heard and we are discerning the will of God together. But we also felt it was really important that those who just were going to dig their heels in weren't able to hold the rest of the community to ransom. There will be those among us, and, and we all hope it won't happen, but it's very likely that we do. Those among us whose approach to the little ones actually causes a problem. And we need to be aware too that sometimes it's us and our approach to the little ones that causes the problem. That we know how they're supposed to be doing it and know where their two pence is supposed to go. And we press and we push and we cajole and coerce and force them to go up to the counter and give their two pence to invest. And what then can easily happen is that they turn tail and run and never come back to the church because the message they've got is we're not interested in who you are we're interested in who we think you ought to be Jesus is trying to tackle pride in these verses and he has no space for it he makes no room for any of those kinds of attitudes and indeed when there's a failure in Ezekiel when there's a failure for the shepherds to care for the flock, being a representation of those who lead the people of God. When there's a failure there, it is the shepherds who are held responsible. So what do we take away from this? Well, I think we need to ask ourselves about what it is that Jesus expects of disciples and of how they engage with each other. I believe this whole chapter is about relationships between disciples, relationships in the church. We've had an, uh, an encouragement to be childlike, and now we're having a challenge not to allow anyone to stumble, to make space for them to be accepted. And drawing on Romans 14, not to look down on those who we feel should have a stronger faith but to respect where they are and where their conscience has brought them. You see, the thing that's going to make the biggest difference in our growth, in our spiritual growth in Jesus, in relationship with him and relationship with those around us, is the quality of the relationships. You can have the best doctrine in the world, but if the relationships around you aren't any good, then you are of no use to anyone else. 
and you will find that no one is of any use to you. The relationships are crucial. Just before we finish, I just want to put this idea in your mind. When it comes to stumbling blocks, what are the things most likely to be problematic? We know we're talking about pride here, and we know we're talking about childlikeness. But what is it? Is it is it a struggle to take seriously those questions or points raised by those who maybe haven't known Jesus so long? Is it our attitude to those who we believe don't have the same principles that we do? Is it a clash over what we think is important to do with mission? Or is it simply that we aren't building relationships with those around us, even though we are walking alongside them in our faith, either in our smaller gathering or across the wider congregation. Some of these things need thinking about. They're not quite our um, questions, but they are things that are worth considering. What are the stumbling blocks we need to be aware of? So, relationships are essential to growth in a way that knowing the answers is not. Growth might take you to some ex- exciting answers, and that's brilliant. But it is not knowledge so much as a relationship that makes us disciples. Let's pray, and then we'll ask our three questions. Lord Jesus, be close to us, close enough that you can help us shine a light on those stumbling blocks in our community. Help us to see what they are and do something to clear them out. And give us courage to see where we might be the obstacle. Okay, so here's our three questions with a quick apology just before I launch into them. Um, I don't have a lot of problem with hay fever, but I do have a bit. I've got a rather snuffly nose and a bit of a dry throat today. So my apologies if that's got in the way of, um, of hearing me well. Question one, how might we be a stumbling block to other disciples? How might we be a stumbling block to other disciples? And I'd like you to see if you can answer that question from your experience. Either your experience of others being a stumbling block for you, or of you being a stumbling block for others, perhaps. Or maybe you've seen situations where one person's been a stumbling block for another. Question two follows question one. How should we guard against this in the future, in our fellowship? In our our community of disciples, how can we guard against those stumbling blocks happening? Question three is possibly the toughest of the three. How can we tell others if we believe they are putting up hurdles or being stumbling blocks too? How can we tell others? How would we go about that? Letting other people know if we think that might be a problem. Well, that's it from me this time round. I'm going to pray and then we'll part company, at least for now. Lord Jesus, be with us. Help us to be self-aware. Help us to be able to reflect on who we are and how we do things. Help us to be conscious of the conversations that we have with others about our faith. We pray that those conversations would happen. We also pray that we would navigate through them well, that we might be encouragers and nourishers of the faith of others and walk with them in their discipleship. Amen.
the blessing of God Almighty, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit be with us today and every day. Amen.